Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. I got to a point where um, even though I had so much anger towards her, there was a point where I started to fall in love with her story as a child. And when I opened my adoption records and I, I kind of started to do some research on who my mom was, I learned that she too was trafficked by her mom. And so it was a generational thing. And unfortunately for my mother, DCF never stepped in and took her and gave her the opportunity at another life. And so I kind of, over the years, have fallen in love with the younger version of my mom. And when I was able to do that, it made me want to live my life in a way that would honor her sacrifices and honor her pain. And so that's how I live my life today. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way Akasa works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Hi there, this is Jake Eberle, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast. And today, Jane Amelia speaks with Sana Latrice Cotton. She's a former foster youth who was trafficked when she was four years old by her mother and grandmother. She's now a motivational speaker and foster youth advocate and the founder of Unashamed, a nonprofit organization which fosters emotional health in disadvantaged families that have experienced incarceration, foster care, and teen pregnancy. Here's her story. Hey, I'm here with Sana Latrice Cotton. I'm using your whole name because it's so beautiful. Is that okay? It's okay. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So hi, thank you for joining me on this. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? How are you raised? Where are you from? So I am actually from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, Bridgeport actually used to be the capital of Connecticut many, many years ago. Um, It is one of the largest cities here in Connecticut, and it's also a city that is very well known for uh, violence, um, drugs, that type of an atmosphere. So that's where I, I was born at, and I came into life in that environment. I see. And then it, that that life continued, right? That life continued. So uh, when I was born, I was actually born addicted to heroin. My mother was um, a drug addict. And so I, as well as my twin brother, were actually addicted to heroin when we were born. And so that is actually how we first came into the radar of Department of Children and Families here in Connecticut. Right, right. Because if your mom tested positive and you tested positive, there would have been all kinds of alerts that went out. But Exactly. Right. So were you removed from your mom right then or? I was not removed. Um, they worked with my mom, but my grandmother, my maternal grandmother actually uh, 
lived with my mother. And so they kind of uh, gave her temporary custody of us instead of removing us from care. Right. But then your grandmom didn't really take care of you well either, did she? Exactly. So my grandmother also had um, a drug addiction as well, but she was a little more functioning than my mother. Obviously, she was a little older than my mother, but she was more functioning. So uh, she took care of us along with my mom, who was in and out of prison at the time. And then when we turned four years old, um, my mother's brother, my uncle, who was also a drug addict but high-functioning, took us to a doctor's appointment with his girlfriend to a regular, just a regular checkup, yearly checkup to our pediatric doctor. And it was discovered that I had a sexually transmitted disease. And um, I was four years old. And so when I was questioned by my uh, the medical personnel as to what was happening to me, I explained to them that there were several men um, that had been touching me in different places. Right. So you were trafficked by I your was own sex family. trafficked, yep, by my mother and my grandmother. Right. And they were, so they were selling you in order to feed their drug habit? Exactly. Wow. So Mm -hmm. do you have any, do you have any memory of, of that? Or is that something you put very far back? Um, for a long time, I didn't have a lot of memory of it, but as I got older, I began having some flashbacks. Um, so I, I remember some stuff in kind of flashes, um, and, you know, just kind of being in in the house and and seeing the men and stuff like that. But it wasn't until I got older that I really started having flashbacks of like, like the faces of men. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so then you were removed from your mom and your grandmom and then, then what happened? You went into the foster homes, right? Yes. So at that point, age four, uh, first we lived in the hospital for quite a while, um, just because they were trying to, in addition to the sexual, sexual abuse, there was also some physical abuse. So we were being monitored in the hospital for a couple months and then we were placed into foster care. Um, Right. Let me ask you, though, are you in touch with that uncle? Like, because he kind of saved your life, right? Even though he was, I mean, did he have any idea what was going on, you think? Um, so that story is very interesting. And we, I've actually just come to really know the entire story within the last two years. So my uncle at the time, as I stated, was also a high functioning um, drug addict, but uh, he had a girlfriend who was pretty stable and she was Caucasian and I'm African-American, just so you all know. Um, and so at the time, the two of them brought us to the doctor's appointment. When the police were called, my uncle left because he had a warrant out for his arrest. I see. And so his girlfriend, which I call my aunt, uh, she stayed there with us and he lived with the guilt of like him being the one having brought us to the doctor's appointment. And then it gets discovered while we're basically on his watch. He lived with guilt for many, many, many years, um, because of that. And in fact, he never even had kids because he felt so responsible for us being taken. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it, you were so vulnerable, just a little child. Yes. Yeah. So he did I, feel a lot of guilt. And he actually, um, 
I lost contact with him when we were placed into care and I did not meet him again until two years ago. So it wasn't even two years ago. I guess it was maybe a year and a half ago, but he actually passed away in July of 2021. Um, when I met him, he was in hospice care. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're four years old, you go into, you're in the hospital and then you spend the next four years in foster care, right? Yep. Spend the next four years in foster care um, with a great family. The family, for the most part, was a really good family that we were placed with. Um, I thought because we had been there for so long, the plan really was for them to adopt us. Uh, But unfortunately, the husband and wife ended up getting a divorce. And then uh, we were still there with the wife. But then she ended up um, having uh, some medical issues that came up. She had a stroke and then some other things that came up. And so medically, she just wasn't able to keep us. And so she had to make the difficult decision to actually tell them that we needed to be placed for adoption. Right. So at at that time now, you're, you know, five, six, seven, eight. Did you have an understanding of what, what's going on? Are you just, just, there's all these adults talking to you and you just have to go where you have to go? Or were you able to to understand it. I was, um, sometimes I consider myself a unique story in which I only had one social worker the entire time that I was in care all the way through my adoption. Yeah, that's rare. That's very rare. And, um, she was an amazing, amazing social worker. And so she very much so cared for, for my brother and I, as if we were her own children. That's wonderful. As much as she could. And so she was very, open and honest with us. And she educated me a lot on what was happening, you know, the steps that were being taken, what would happen next. She was very good about making sure that I understood exactly what was happening. I am two minutes older than my brother in age. um, But when you consider the trauma that we endured, there's a part of him that is a lot younger than me mentally. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the explaining and, and decisions and things like that, I was very much a part of, and I kind of made decisions for both of us. Interesting. Wow. Mm-hmm. So so you became the little parent. You know, there's a term for that. You were parentified. I was. That's a good term. I've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I was parentified at a, at a, at really, I say at age four, when we first got placed in a care, I feel like I kind of didn't have the option to remain a child anymore. My brother literally stopped talking. Like when we got ah. placed into care, he just didn't want to talk. Like he would whisper in my ear if he needed to use the bathroom or he was hungry. Like he just literally went through a period where he just only talked to me. Mm, so he just like shut down to protect mm-hmm. himself probably, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So then a family adopted you. How, how did that work out? And what was that like? So, um, we ended up getting adopted by a family who were being licensed through their church. So their church group was actually doing the entire licensing process back then. And there was multiple people in their church that had actually gone through trainings for adoptions. And so we were chosen out of a book. There was a book 
with our picture. Um, it, it wasn't just our pictures, all the kids that were currently up for adoption in the state of Connecticut. Um, right, like a catalog that people like a catalog. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it was um, our picture. And then it had a little write up next to the picture that kind of gave a little description of, you know, our personality and some of the good and some of the bad traits about us. And um, they chose us out of a book. At the time, they were only looking to adopt a daughter because they already had a son in the home. So they were looking to adopt a daughter. Um, But my bio mom had asked the department to ensure to the best of their ability that we were adopted together. And so that was something that was honored. And um, my parents chose to take both of us. And so we both were adopted into this home. Um, My adopted father was actually adopted himself. So he wasn't unfamiliar to, you know, adoption and what how children that are adopted, you know, some of the issues and things they face. And so um, they adopted us and we had a really, really good life. I mean, we were in private schools. Um, We had a really good life with this family. They were very structured. Um, My mom was very strict, like all the time. She's very strict. Uh, Christians, And so we were in church a whole lot. Um, They had high expectations for our grades in school. You know, it was it was a normal, normal family. Um, And I say all that to say, although it was as normal as it was, I still never felt like I belonged there. Yeah. And it, it had nothing to do with them or they didn't make me feel like the adopted kid or, you know, anything like that. It was just the fact that, you know, I was adopted when I was eight, nine years old, but I always knew that I wasn't a part of this family. Like they weren't my mom and dad. And I think that for a lot of adopted kids, when you have those memories already of your bio family and another life and all that stuff, it makes it harder for you to really fit into the whole concept of adoption. Right. And you also said that perhaps the home wasn't as nurturing as you needed, even though there there was structure and there was discipline and and good schools. You didn't feel like you were really nurtured. Right. Right. My Mm -hmm. mom was not the mother that cuddled with you and, you know, said, I love you every day before you went off to school or tucked you into bed at night or kissed you on your forehead. Like she just wasn't that she wasn't that type of a mom. And I just think that's coming from her own life and what she, you know, her own story. Her mom was the same way, not very nurturing, very um, protective and and did all those other great things, but the nurturing part was missing. And so it was missing for me. And that was a big thing that I needed was to be nurtured, was to be affirmed, was to be, you know, really, really a loved on. And I just, I didn't, I didn't receive that from, from my mom. Right. So you're married now and your husband is a minister and you have two little kids. So are you loving on them all the time? Oh my gosh. I love on them all the time. It's, it's, you know, for them, I think initially they were, they loved it when they were little, then they got into middle school and they were a little annoyed. And, um, but now they're very used to it. 
And I do it a lot because I want them to know that it's okay to love and hug on people. Uh, my daughter, who's 14, she's she's very much not a nurturer at all. She So if you hug her, she'll kind of stand there with her arms down. Um, but I know she enjoys being nurtured. She just doesn't know how to respond to it. So how did you make the leap from, uh, I'll say, a troubled child? Because you must have been, e- even if you made good adjustments and you ended up in a in a safe and relatively happy home, you still had all this stuff happening in your heart and in your head that is not going to go away. And you've really come to terms with it in terms of speaking about it and in terms of educating people about what happens to to young kids who are trafficked. And in fact, you are the founder of Unashamed Inc., right? I am. I am. Um, you know, it was a lot. It was a long road because from being adopted to now where I am today, I became a teen mom. So I had my son at 18 years old. I left high school, ended up going to Job Corps and got my GED through Job Corps, never graduated high school, was involved in a semi-violent relationship. So there was a lot of things that happened in the middle. But one thing that was always ingrained in me, even from the age of four, when I was placed into my foster home, was faith. And so for me, faith has been the thing that has kept me grounded. Even when I was making mistakes, even when I was living a hard life, it was always my faith and my belief in God that got me through. And a lot of healing, a lot of healing, because there was a lot of anger that I felt towards my bio mom, my bio grandmother, my my adopted mom. And there was just a lot of anger and things that I had to come to terms with and deal with within my own life. And so it was really my faith and being grounded in it that got me to where I am, where it made me say, you can't be angry forever. At some point, you have to try to find the beauty in the life that you've been afforded to live and recognizing that while you had it bad, there are others who had it worse. And so what can you take from this to grow and and become stronger and not be buried in these, these different things that you've endured? Yeah, it's really hard to live an angry life. It's right. just it's exhausting. And it's exhausting. Yeah, and and it, it and it just invariably means you're unhappy and you make everyone around you unhappy. Right. Exactly. Right. right. And so you talk about all this in your book, everyone will know it was God. Yes, I do. And I find that Speaking and sharing and telling my story is one of the best forms of healing. And so I encourage people to tell your story, no matter how hard it is, because every time you open your mouth and you share it, there's a little bit more healing that happens. There's a layer of pain that falls off of you as you share it. And as you share it, you start to get different revelation and perspective on what you endured. And I think as your perspective starts to shift, um, the things that you were angry about, you realize, man, I made it. I still got through and I'm here. And so that's been a push for me. In addition to that, you know, my, my bio mom, I got to a point where 
um, even though I had so much anger towards her, there was a point where I started to fall in love with her story as a child. And when I opened my adoption records and I, I kind of started to do some research on who my mom was, I learned that she too was trafficked by her mom. And so it was a generational thing. And unfortunately for my mother, DCF never stepped in and took her and gave her the opportunity at another life. And so I kind of, over the years, have fallen in love with the younger version of my mom. And when I was able to do that, it made me want to live my life in a way that would honor her sacrifices and honor her pain. And so that's how I live my life today. Um, Just really in remembrance of her, she passed away in 2002. I didn't get the opportunity to have a relationship with her that I would have liked to have had. But I like to believe that every day that I wake up and I push my way through the day and, and try to affect change in the child welfare system. She's smiling down on me, grateful that, you know, from her, um, from her seed, there was a good harvest. Wow. Wow. Uh, that's just, that's um, so courageous of you and so, so forward thinking. And you are truly a child advocate mm-hmm. of of uh, not just kids who are in foster care, but as you have said, also, you know, teen parents, because there's so much stigma attached to that. Right. right? And shame too, sometimes, even if they want the kid, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so that's how I live my life. You know, there's a lot of change and a lot of areas that we can, um, you know, do our best to affect change. And so I try to make sure that I tackle as many of them that are, you know, as personal to me as I can. Right. And you are a uh, motivational speaker, right? Yes. Yeah. So what does that look like? Who who do you speak to and, and where do you go? Um, I speak to a variety of audiences. I do a lot of speaking to women in the faith-based communities because I think a lot of people think that, you know, as a Christian, when you start to find God, that life is just going to be great and you're going to have no issues. And that's not, oh. that's not the case. Um, and, but, but there is ways in which you can still push, push through them. And so I share a lot in the faith-based community, but I also do um, a lot of speaking on behalf of uh, the Department of Children and Families here in Connecticut, and just really sharing my story of foster care, my story of adoption, in in a way in which to try to get more families to have a desire to become foster parents or to um, become parents that are looking to adopt, or just to be better parents period, you know, because you don't just have to be a foster parent or an adopted parent to want to be a better parent. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And so what is your life like? You've got kids who are teenagers now. Do you have? Yes. Yeah. Um, I have. So I've been married for 15 years now to an amazing husband who is a pastor here in our town. We have two children. Uh, Our son is 19. He'll actually be 20 in July. And then we have a 14-year-old daughter. So we have one that's out of school, one that's going into high school. So that's a whole thing um, within itself. (laughs) (laughs) And then... um, And then I do a lot of different, you know, my day-to-day can vary a a lot. I do a lot of different, I teach or facilitate workshops. I coach 
men and women. I I just do a lot of different things from day to day. So it's mm-hmm. my days are never the same. I just was in Massachusetts with the with commissioners from six different states here in the northeastern part of the country, and so that was amazing. And then you know I get to be on your podcast today, so it just ranges. <laughs> <laughs> So how do you feel about who you are now? Um, I feel I feel great about who I am. Sometimes I wish I would have did this work sooner and by this work I mean the healing. I wish I would have embarked on a healing journey sooner so that I could have done more. But, you know, God's timing is the best timing and so I feel like I am right where I'm supposed to be. The pandemic was, you know, hard for everybody. And so I felt like I kind of hit a dead stop. But um, I'm I'm happy where I am. I feel like I'm definitely uh, an encourager. I'm a connector. I am a lover of people. I'm an advocate, you know. So there's so many things that I get I get to be every day. And so that makes me that makes me proud of who I am. And were there any adults in your young life that made a, a big impact on you? My social worker. I just, worker, I mean, yeah. she she was absolutely amazing. She has since passed away, unfortunately. Um, and I wasn't able to find her in time to tell her how amazing she was in my life. But I have had the opportunity to meet her family and to share with them um, the impact that she's made on my life. So when I think about those people, she is, I mean, she's, she is definitely it. She was my, she was just, she was my everything. It's just so good to hear because it's such a hard job. And I, as I've talked about on the podcast before, I think a lot of people go into um, the work thinking they're going to make a huge difference and then they become overwhelmed and right. Uh, right. It can be really disheartening. And when I hear about a social worker like this that hung in there with you. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh my gosh. She was amazing. I still have like the gifts that she gave us when we went into, uh, when we got adopted, she knit me a sweater with my name in it. And she brought me this little red chair that I still have. If you go to my social media, you'll see a picture of me sitting in the chair. <laughs> um, but she was just amazing. And, and, I just, I mean, I honor her. So whenever I see social workers, I try to share that with them. Like, you guys do make a difference and you don't always get to hear it, but you make a difference. You are so necessary in the child welfare system. So face each and every single day like it's your last because these kids need you and you are making such an impact on our lives. Wow. I, I'm so glad that you said that mm-hmm. because... I think it's really true. It's such a hard job, but they can they're saving lives yes, every day sometimes. Every day. So how's your brother? So unfortunately my brother, uh his story has been probably the exact opposite of mine. Um oh. he ended up incarcerated at the age of fifteen and has been in and out ever since. Um he's currently incarcerated as we speak, um, and will be released in September of this year. So a few more months and he'll be home. I'm hoping that he will make a change. You know, we are walking into 40 
in October. And so I'm hoping that he's at a point in his life where he's ready to shift the narrative of his story. Yeah. And I guess you'll do whatever you can to help him, but ultimately it's, it's, it's he that has to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And were you ever in touch with your dad? Do you know who your dad is? I had the opportunity to finally meet my uh, biological father's family after searching for, I feel like my entire life, but really, really searching for at least the ten, past 10 years. Uh, at the end of 2021, actually, um, I'm sorry, the end of 2020. So I met them for the first time. Unfortunately, my, my dad passed away back in the 90s. So I didn't get to meet him, but he did leave me the gift of two older brothers. So I do have two older brothers that are 10 years older than me. Um, everyone lives in North Carolina. So unfortunately, they're not as close in proximity to me, but I've gotten a chance to go down to North Carolina a couple of times and spend some time with them. So they are an absolutely amazing family. So please tell me about Unashamed Inc. and how, why you started it and, and, and what it's all about. You know, honestly, Unashamed Inc. was started, uh, I want to say by accident. <laughs> I was, I was already doing the work. I was already in the community without a nonprofit organization, just doing the work, not because, you know, I was looking for donations, but because I was just looking for ways to serve my community. And so for a few years, I was just doing the work. You know, I was paying for stuff out of my pocket. And then there were people who recognized the work I was doing. And so they would always donate whenever I was doing stuff. And then finally, my mentor was like, you need to start a nonprofit organization. Like you need to be able to apply for grants and all this different stuff. And so I went ahead and started Unashamed. I love the title, by the way. Thank you. I mean, the name, not the title. I think it's really great because there is so much shame attached to a lot of the issues that you cover. And it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. And, And that's exactly why I named it unashamed was to be able to not be ashamed of incarceration or being a teen parent or being a foster youth or being homeless, you know, whatever it is. Um, And so we get to do a lot of work in our community and our surrounding communities and really affect change. And and our goal is to really shift the generational patterns within families so that they have an opportunity to imagine themselves beyond their current statuses. Yeah, and if you can do that, then you do you stop that chain of events, right? Exactly. Of the repetition. Exactly. Of, that's right. The generational abuse, that's the generational right. foster care, exactly. the generational neglect, the generational pain, trauma, all that. Exactly. And that that's the goal is to show up and be for others what I needed people to be for me. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow, good on you. Thank you. All right, so what are your dreams of the future? Like, what can you imagine what else you might do? Um, I want to actually own, uh, I want to purchase a building where we can actually use it for youth that are transitioning out of foster care. So um, teens that are transitioning out of foster care, um, teens that are in college and you know, we're not adopted, so they don't have a family, but they need somewhere to go for college breaks and all that stuff and be able to really give them the opportunity to 
find themselves and to get the help that they need because a lot of, you know, they age out and they're still kids and they still need guidance to be able to navigate through life. We're adults and still need guidance to navigate through life. And so the goal is really to be able to staff it with all the resources that they need to be able to be successful. Right. So in Connecticut, is it 18 or 21? When do kids age out? It's 21 if they go to college. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. If they have either a part-time job right. or part-time school, right? right. There's a, so there's requirements they need to meet in order to still continue to get services. Right. But sometimes that's really hard for them to do, especially exactly. as you said, when they haven't had the support and structure at, at all in their lives, why should they suddenly become the perfect 19-year-old. Exactly. And a lot of them, when you think about it, I mean, they've never even seen documents that they need to use to apply for a job, like their social security card or their birth certificate. Like a lot of them, this stuff has been in the possession of Department of Children and Families. And so for the first time, now you're getting to see your social security card and your birth certificate. And it's like, what do we need these documents for? And, you know, so it, it, they don't have IDs. Like it's so much when you really think of, but yet we are telling these kids to go head out into society and, and, and don't end up in prison. Right. Right. And just go. Right. Yeah. Just go. And good luck. Right. 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 Yeah. So how did you get a hold of your adoption papers and all, and all of that? Did you have to petition? Did you? Uh, I did. Um, mm. I, I sent a letter. It, it really was easy, easier than I imagined, but I just sent the letter to uh, the unit at Department of Children and Families, there's a unit specifically for uh, adoptees to be able to open their records here in Connecticut. And so I sent a notarized letter there requesting my my records be opened. Um, and a few months later, I received a call from a gentleman um, that was assigned to my case. And he had gone into the archives, located my records, and requested to meet with me directly to share the records with me, which is unheard of. Normally, they just mail you your records and that's the end of it. But for whatever reason, he read through my records and he was really um, moved by what was in them. And he wanted to make sure that when I received them and read them, I had support with me to be able to read and process what was in what was in my records. That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So he... Um, He's been amazing. He was just amazing. And I actually, uh, so that was when I was 27 years old. I'll be 40. And I just reached out earlier this year to DCF to find him and to just thank him for doing that. Because again, he, he didn't have to do that. That was unheard of. He, he came to me and he really wanted to ensure that I was going to be okay. Wow, the, he sounds like a great guy. Yes, he is. He is. Yeah, and I so appreciate that you recognize the value of gratitude. Mm-hmm. It, that itself is very healing, isn't it? It is. It is. And I, I feel like, you know, life is hard for a lot of people and you never know what people are facing on a day-to-day basis. And so if there's someone that has shifted the trajectory of your life or inspired or encouraged or just pushed you through the day or the year, um, I feel like you should let them know that, you know, because it could be your one email or your one phone call or your one text message that keeps them alive. You know, you just never know what people are facing. And so for me, I get 
great joy in being able to share with someone how they have positively affected my life. Wow, wonderful. So I want to ask you something um, that I ask all my guests, and you're very forthcoming about your experiences and your your, your history, so um, I'm curious as to what you're going to answer, but what is the one thing that no one would ever know about you unless you told them? Hmm. That is interesting. So I'm sure we would love for this to be a deep response because... um, deserves to be deep but because like you said I'm very forthcoming and I basically tell every part of my life um (laughs) I'll tell you something that's unique what most people do not know about me unless I told them is that I actually enjoy looking at people's baby shower registries Really? I love going on social media and specifically Instagram and people who are pregnant always seem to post their baby shower links in their profile. And I just love looking to see what people put on their registries and then what their supporters purchase for them. It's just so intriguing to me. That's so sweet, right? Because you, just, <laughs> right, it, right. It's like you're just enjoying it for them and with them. In yeah, a way, right. And I'm just nosy, and you know, <laughs> I just I love to to see that. I love to, you know, you can tell a lot about a person's baby shower by the decor that they purchase for their baby, like the color scheme. Are they are they very much into organic products? Because you'll see a lot of like organic baby bits and disposable this and, you know, washable that. Um, Or people who are just like, I want the fanciest of the fancy, so I'm going to choose a $600 car seat. So it's just very (laughs) interesting um, to see what people put on their baby shower registry. (laughs) You know, I, I, I... I would not never have guessed that, that there's a person out there that does that. And, and, but that's how you like entertain and also calm yourself at the same time. Exactly. It's, it, it really is Jane, because I, um, you know, I have a lot going on in my life. There's a lot that happens in my life. I'm responsible for a lot. I love a lot of people. There's a lot of people who look to me for advice or help or whatever. And so for me, looking at baby shower registries at 12 o'clock in the morning is calming to my mind and it helps Mm -hmm, me go to mm -hmm. sleep. Um, Sometimes I get a good laugh, you know, Mm -hmm. so it just, it's just fun. That's wonderful. (laughs) Um, So my last question is what, what would you say to a teen? And you, you probably do this already on a, on a regular basis, but what would you say to a teen who's facing adversity, who's had a really hard time in care and, and possibly a very traumatic childhood what would you say to them to give them hope to to get out of it to get to the other side of it I would tell them that they were planted and not buried and I would say that to them because I think a lot of times we go through and we face stuff and we just feel like we we can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel. And that's what being buried is, right? When you're buried six feet under in a casket with dirt thrown over you, there's no light getting in. And so you feel buried. Um, So you are buried. But in 
a lot of these teen situations, you're not buried. You have to shift the way you see your life and you see the trials and struggles that you endure. And you say, you know what? I'm not buried. I'm, I'm planted right now. This is, I'm planted, but all of these things are going to push me to grow. And so I would tell them to look at your life as being planted and every experience that you endure is just you getting watered and fed so you can grow to bloom into a beautiful flower. Oh, That's a beautiful metaphor. Really beautiful. Thank you. I want to thank you, Sana. You're an extraordinary woman. Uh, thank you. I'm I don't know you, but I feel proud of you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for speaking with us today, okay? Thank you for having me. Thank you, Sana. It's really important that you share your story, and it takes a lot of courage to do so in a public forum. So thank you very much for sharing with us. And for anyone who would like to contact her organization, you can visit unashamedinc.org. That's unashamedinc.org. Next week, our guest will be Jeffrey Jamerson. Jeffrey Jamerson has over 30 years of experience in the public sector, serving at-risk youth and families in various capacities. Most recently, as the VP of Programs and Services at Aviva Family and Children's Services in Los Angeles, California. So join us next week for Jeffrey Jamerson. Thank you and be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, Contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposta. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.